Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our Advent series. This morning we find ourselves in the New Testament in the book of Luke as we look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then verses 26 through 38. Remember, beloved, remember these are the very written words of God. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the sixth month, or in verse 26, in the sixth month, meaning the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her. And he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. So this past week, I was asked a question that I have never been asked before in all my years of pastoral ministry, and it may surprise you that I have never been asked this. This is the question. Why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. Why is it that we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? The Bible gives us absolutely no indication of the day on which Jesus was born. So how did the church arrive at this date? Well, I stumbled stumbled and stammered and mentioned about early tradition, but I really had no idea exactly why December 25th had been decided by the early church as the date on which Jesus was born. 
But after that, I did a deep dive. Um, I've done a little research since then and would like to share with you the reason on which the church decided on the 25th. But before I do so, how would you have answered the question? Would you have fared any better than me that it went back to some early tradition, but the exact rationale of how the 25th had been chosen would have been elusive to you? How would you have done? How did the church get the date? Okay, let's kind of warm up as we get there. Okay, one scholar writes, we have evidence from the second century Less than 50 years after the close of the New Testament, so around 150 AD, we have evidence that Christians were celebrating and observing the birth of the Lord Jesus. They did not, however, agree upon a set date that Jesus had been born. So they agreed that celebrating his birth and incarnation was a good thing. They did not celebrate in a light on a day. There was no one day as early as 150 that all Christians celebrated Christmas in the very early church. So that's good to know that really early they were celebrating the birth and incarnation, but that does not help answer our question, how did we get December 25th as the date? Some believe that December 25th was chosen by the church in the middle 300s AD as a response to the pagan celebration of the sun god or soul invictus that was held on December 25th, the date of the summer solstice. So on this view, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. It was a Christian response to a pagan celebration that was going on celebrating soul invictus, December 25th, the winter solstice, okay? That's one view. Others, with good reason, believe that December 25th became the date because of an early church father. Anybody have any idea as to the name of this early church father? There's a reference to December 25th that goes all the way back to 203 or 209 AD by Hippolytus of Rome. In his commentary on the book of Daniel, chapter 4, he mentions that Jesus was born on December 25th on a Wednesday. How in the world he came up with Wednesday? We don't know. He was back what they would call maybe what they call like a chronologist. He kind of was interested in dates and he had various rationale in how he came up with December 25th, but none of it was biblical. We have absolutely no idea when Jesus was born. Now, I happen to love December 25th. I think we all do. We all hold it in very high regard. It's a great date. You have to pick a date. It's as good as any date, so I'll take it. I love it. I think it's good that it happens in wintertime and all that. But that part is not historical. What is historical is Luke's account. Luke's account is very historical and extremely well attested. And so while we don't know the exact day on which the Lord Jesus was born, we know how his birth was announced through the angel Gabriel. Okay? 
What was, do you remember, what was Luke's, um, what was his credential? What was Luke's background, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, that would have, that would have put him in place to give us an account of the birth of Jesus Christ? What set Luke apart? Why was Luke qualified to write a biography of Jesus? Because that's what Luke is doing. The genre of the book of Luke, we would call ancient historical biography. Luke was doing what others had done at that time. This was a known genre at the time. We had biographies of Josephus. We have a biography of Plutarch. Luke was writing what the early church would understand is a historical biography. He wants you to know that it came to him through the testimony of whom? Eyewitnesses. What put Luke in a place to speak with eyewitnesses? Do you know? You should know. Luke was a disciple, but he was not one of the apostles. Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. Luke may have been converted before he met Paul or by Paul, but Luke was a physician and a traveling companion of Paul. And perhaps while Paul was in prison in this place or that, we know that he was imprisoned a couple times, and people were allowed to visit Paul, it's very possible that while Luke was attending and assisting Paul, Luke had access to a variety of apostles, to a variety of significant figures in the early church. He was a historian of the first rate, and Luke tries to set aside his gospel and rooted in history in the first four verses. Look with me. Luke 1, 1 through 4. This is not a fairy tale. This did not come to him through embellishment or legend. This is how Luke says he got his information. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative, what does that tell you? Just that little phrase. There were other biographies, of Jesus going around at the time. By the time Luke wrote his gospel, Luke probably had access to Mark, and perhaps Matthew had been written, and maybe there were some others, we don't know. I think that's interesting. Inasmuch as he says many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, he's getting this information from those who experienced it, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. There, it was very important to the early church to get this testimony from eyewitnesses. Papias, who was a very early church father who lived within living memory of the apostles, made it certain that he was getting his information from people who had spoken directly to an apostle. Luke is very careful about the way he presents this. It's dedicated to whom? It's actually dedicated to his patron, to a man named 
Theophilus, who probably would have been a person of means in the very early church and who funded Luke and then what else? The book of Acts. So Theophilus would have been the patron who paid Luke to be able to spend time writing these works. Also amazing. So Luke is getting his information from eyewitnesses. Luke has a variety of sources from the early church. What source do you think gave him this story? Pretty amazing to consider. Luke tells us that Mary, what did she do? She treasured up all these things in her heart. That's a hint, many scholars think, that Luke is telling the reader that he spoke directly with Mary. The details from our passage this morning about the announcement of the conception of Jesus come directly from the lips of Mary. That's overwhelming to me, that we are hearing this story from Mary's perspective. Let's look at this announcement regarding the conception of Jesus. Luke, being the careful historian that he is, he roots it, he time stamps it for you in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist. The angel, Gabriel. What does that mean, the name Gabriel? We might talk a little bit about names later. What does the name Gabriel mean? It means God is my strength. Gabriel lives in the very presence of God Almighty. In fact, when he showed up um, to Zechariah, he said, I've come from the very presence of God Almighty. There's only two angels named in the Bible. Can you name them? Gabriel and who? The archangel Michael. Gabriel has a very special position and place in communicating the word of God. We'll see that Gabriel is a very, very impressive and awe-inspiring angel. Verse 26 of our passage, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Again, he's rooting it in space and time, in history and geography. Verse 27, to a virgin betrothed or engaged, you might say, their view of engagement was more intense, not exactly a one-to-one with ours. When they got betrothed, it was actually the first stage of marriage that would be completed later, and then the marriage consummated. To a virgin, verse 27, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name, so that Greek word, Parthenos, has now been repeated twice. The virgin's name was Mary. And Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Notice her response in verse 29. But she, Mary, was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. What is your interpretation of that statement? You've read this account many times, no doubt. What does that mean that she's greatly troubled at the saying and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. What does that mean? What was her interpretation? I think initially she didn't know exactly what to do with it. Maybe like a child who's being summoned by a parent, am I in trouble? 
Is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Verse 29, she's greatly troubled at the saying, tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The text implies she's terrified. Why would Mary have been terrified? How is her response consistent with other people who have seen Gabriel? That's remarkable as well. The consistency of the Bible from the Old Testament to the New. Do you remember how the great prophet Daniel responded when Gabriel showed up and communicated with Daniel. It's kind of humorous. Do you remember what Daniel did in Daniel chapter 8? Daniel fainted, and Gabriel had to give him like an ancient version of a smelling salt to wake Daniel up. He was so overwhelmed by the appearance of this glorious being whose name means God is my strength. How did Zechariah respond? He was terrified. He was overwhelmed. How old was Mary, do you think? Perhaps you've read about this. Perhaps you've heard a sermon about this. You've heard a devotional. How old do we think Mary was at this time? How old were girls in the first century, Jewish girls, how old were they when they were given in marriage? About how old were they? They were about 15 or 16, possibly even 14 Mary is a 15-year-old girl from a nowhere place, a nowhere peasant Jew. And Gabriel, whose name means God is my strength, has arrived to her to make an announcement. She's overwhelmed. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Luke to be recording this? For Mary to say how she felt when she saw this amazing angel. If I were Luke, I'd be like, well, how tall was he? What did he look like? Daniel tells you what he sounds like. His voice had this, it was harmonic. It, ha- it had this, this timbre and tone that's like hard to put into words as he spoke. We, we have no reference point for what the angel Gabriel would have sounded like, the tone, the timbre, of his voice, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob, meaning he's going to reign over Israel forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? That is the third time that has been emphasized, the repetition on the fact that this 15-year-old girl who was betrothed in marriage to Joseph was a virgin. What's the significance of that? What's the importance of that for the original reader? How does this relate to what we looked at last week? What happened in 734 B.C.? One of the most significant prophecies of the Old Testament that we review about every other year. Do you know the verse? Just a little trivia. Do you remember the verse from last week? Isaiah what? 714. When Isaiah said to Ahaz, you don't want a sign? The Lord is going to give you a sign. 
The virgin will give birth to a son, and you will call him what? Emmanuel. Over 700 years before this, God had prophesied to Isaiah that a virgin would give birth to a son who would be God with us. This is the fulfillment of that long-anticipated prophecy. Absolutely amazing. Watershed moment in the history of redemption. Incredible, unprecedented in the history of the world. This idea that a virgin would give birth to a son. Now, I want us to think about this. Remember, this is real history. I had a neighbor across the street. I've mentioned him before at our house in East Dallas that we lived in in many years. And Bob, who was a very colorful figure, a little eccentric, and we would get into conversations, and he was very philosophical, and he liked to talk about things. And one time before Easter, we were got into a little bit, or just not got into, that's not the right way to say it. We had a loving, gentle dialogue <laughs> about the truth of resurrection or, what, or the Christian claim. And Bob responded that not only the death and resurrection of Jesus, but the virgin birth were simply, um, it was Christians remanufacturing pagan motifs that had been around for a long time. That within pagan motifs, you had dying and rising saviors. You had virgins who gave birth to children, to male children who were born on December 25th in caves, visited by shepherds. This is nothing new. Do you think that's accurate? Certainly there was some history of maybe like a dying and rising God or something like that, but just a little trivia. We're doing lots of trivia today. Prior to Matthew and Luke, was there any historical predecessor to the virgin birth? Was there any pagan story or motif where you had a virgin giving birth to a son? The answer is no. It was unknown in the history of the world. I'll just read to you a little bit. One scholar writes as follows. And he's responding to this claim of my neighbor Bob, okay? He didn't talk to Bob, but this is kind of like this goes around. He writes, some claim that Christianity was not a new and unique revelation, but Christianity in these stories was actually a Jewish adaptation of ancient pagan motifs built around the myth of a god-man called by various names in pagan religions, Osiris, Dionysus, Attis, Adonis, Bacchus, Mithras, but fundamentally, these are all the same mythical being. It is claimed that these figures share the same mythology. Their father was a god, their mother was a mortal virgin, they were each born in a cave before three shepherds and wise men. There's just one problem. There's absolutely no evidence for these claims. No ancient source whatsoever says any such thing about Osiris or any of the other gods. The virgin birth was without historical precedent. No precursor. This was brand new. How in the world could they have just thought of this, just invented this so early on? To me, that's, that's pretty amazing. Gabriel explains why it had to be this way. Verse 35. 
the angel answered her. So she didn't challenge Gabriel. She was just asking for an explanation. She, she didn't understand. I mean, people in the first century knew what virgins were. They knew where babies came from. Okay, so this was, you know, beyond her understanding. Verse 35, the angel answered her. And just look at the language used. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is so beautifully written. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The people of God in the Old Testament were said to rest under the shadow of the Almighty, under the wings of the Almighty. The Holy, the Most High will, will overshadow you. This is beyond our comprehension. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Conception by the power of the Holy Spirit, accomplished a number of things, not the least of which being, this child would be what, according to the text? Holy, sinless, set apart. This child would be fully human and fully God. This child would be subject to all the miseries, all the difficulties, all the temptations of life in this fallen world, but this child would also be Yahweh God Almighty. Holy, sinless, fully sanctified. Look at verse 32 and 33, these great titles that are ascribed to him. He will be great. He will be called what? Son of the Most High. So this is going to be messianic language. He was going to be the Son of God in a way that no one else had been in the old covenant. He was going to be David, but greater, son of the most high. On what throne would he be seated? He would be seated on David's throne. That's kind of the second honorific or title he would enjoy. And then how long would his reign go? What does the text indicate? He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Clearly, this was going to be the long-anticipated Messiah, born and fleshed in space and time. He's going to be the son of the Most High, reign from David's throne forever and forever. That's amazing. But perhaps the most amazing thing is kind of hidden in there. I would argue even more amazing than all of these titles, these honorifics, most amazing at all, most relevant to us, most cherished, most dear, is the name that was given to him. Now, some people thought he would be named what? If you were to read Isaiah 7, what name would you think would have been applied to him? The name what? Emmanuel, you would think. What do we find out Emmanuel is? Emmanuel is more of a title that he would possess. He would be, literally, God with us. But that's not the name that Gabriel said he should be given. He should be given the name what? Jesus. Think about how long you spent naming your child. I would imagine you spent a long time. I would imagine you didn't just do it rashly or impulsively or lightly. Okay, like names in our context are important. They were even more important in the ancient Near East 
What were names intended to do? It was prayed that people would live up to their name, to the attributes of their name. Names were extremely important in the context of the ancient Near East. Like so, Abram, so Abram's name, do you know what Abram's name meant? Abram's name meant exalted father. God changed Abram's name to what? Abraham, which means like father of a multitude. The name he was given was intended to symbolize who he would be. There is no more significant name in the history of the world than the name that was applied to this child. The name that was applied to this child we know is what? Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of what? What is it? Joshua. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. Had Jesus been born while people were speaking Hebrew, Jesus' name would have been pronounced as what? Yeshua. What language did Jesus most likely grow up speaking? Do you know? Aramaic. Jesus most likely grew up the culture in first century Galilee they would have been Aramaic speakers, which was very similar to Hebrew. What name would Jesus' parents and friends have called him? If we could go back in Michael J. Fox's DeLorean, if we could hear what people called Jesus, they would have called him Yeshua. Did you know that? If you could speak to Jesus in the first century, you would have called him Yeshua or Yeshua. What is that name literally means it means Yahweh saves shortened the name Joshua Yeshua Jesus it means Savior could there have been a more appropriate name given to this child than Jesus Yeshua God is salvation God is our Savior shortened his name was Savior. How amazing that would be. I'll close with this. The older you get and the more mature you get in your faith, the more you will appreciate the wonder and the significance of that name. Because more than anything else in this world, you and I, we need a Savior. The more you grow, the more you mature, the more that you sin, the more that you fail, the more that you don't live up to the expectations that you have for yourself, the more that you disappoint people, the more things that you think and say and do that you can't believe is possible, the more that you wonder if you're really even a Christian, which is a sign of Christian maturity, it really is ironically, the more you will treasure the name Yeshua, the name of Jesus. That is the meaning of Christmas that the triune God 2,000 years ago sent us a Savior. That is amazing. That is worth cherishing. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father of all the things that we've thought about today, which are many and varied, 
Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter and savior of your people. Heavenly Father, we thank you for his ancient predecessor, Joshua, who led your people from their difficult, imprisoned state, as it were, in the wilderness and led them across the river into the promised land. We thank you for Jesus, the new Joshua, the better Joshua, the embodiment of all that is bound up in that name, Yeshua, God saves. Help us to cherish and remember what we celebrate during Advent, and that is in space and time, God has given to us a Savior. In your matchless name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen and amen.